This week, we're, we're continuing on in a series that we started last week in the beginning, uh, looking at God, creation, humankind. And we're really looking through the, the first several chapters in the book of Genesis. But what we're really doing is we're asking some fundamental, basic, big life questions. These questions that all of us have wrestled with at some point. Questions like, where do we come from? And who are we? And who is God? And what's our relationship to God? And what's this life all about? What's gone wrong with our world? Those types of questions. And these are questions that all of us at some point we've all wrestled with. Or at least, you know, maybe some of you dismissed them as a waste of time. But all of us in some way, we've, we've wrestled with these questions. And whether we realize it or not, all of us have answered those questions in some way. And how we've answered those questions uh, guides and shapes our lives and how we're going to live. So just to give you an example, last week we, we started with this question, where do we come from? Where do we come from? Because... That question, where we come from, I mean, that has a lot of profound implications for how we're going to live. And we looked at this in the, the first chapter of Genesis, asking this question, where do we come from? Because if we come from nothing, right, if we have no past, there's nothing in our past, then that means we have nothing in our future. If we're just material that sprang into existence millions and millions of years ago, then that means eventually we're just going to be material that ceases to exist. And what that means then is that in the interim, during this time right now, during our lives, we are in a position where there's no transcendent ultimate meaning. There's nothing that's telling us how we should live, which means that it's left up to us. It just becomes our arbitrary opinion, our decisions about what's right, what's wrong. We have to inject meaning into our own lives as a basis of how we're going to live. Right? Uh, the uh, philosopher and atheist, Jean-Paul Sartre, he put it this way. He says, life has no intrinsic meaning. He says, it is up to you to give it meaning, and value is nothing but the meaning that you choose. In other words, you make it up as you go. What do you feel like your life should mean? What do you think that your life should be about? And so if you think, for example, that your life should be about financial gain, then that's what you're going to live for. And if on the basis of your own experience or how you were raised, you decide that family, family is really what it's all about, then that's what you're going to live for. And if you decide that, you know what, based on what society, maybe what the culture tells us, that really it's about our physical appearance or personal gratification or something along those lines, then those are the things that you're going to live for. See, we're injecting our own meaning. We have to create it. We have to have our own idea of whatever right and wrong, good and bad, all that, because we have nothing else to set that standard for us. But on the other hand, if we come from somewhere, if we come from something, if, as we saw last week, we come from a creator God who loves us, then as we have something in our past, we have something in our future. And that means that right now, in our lives right now, there is meaning. There's a hope for meaning and purpose that the things that we do, the work that we do, our relationships, our families, that all of those have eternal significance. And see, the clear message of Genesis that we looked at last week is that we don't come from nothing. We come from somewhere that God does exist, that God alone is God, that he is the creator of all things. And when we recognize him as such, when we see him as God and has authority in our lives, then he brings order to our world and to our lives. Okay, so that's what we covered last week. Now, that leads us to a second question. Who are we? Who are we? I mean, we know where we came from. We know that God created us. Okay, that's a good start. But who are we? What does it mean to be human? What, what is it that, what is most true about us? What defines us as, as people, but also individually? What is most true about who we are? Now, um, I was a, uh, 
uh, a philosophy major. None of you are surprised right now because of the questions that I'm bringing up here. But when I was graduating from college, okay, I, I had kind of this moment of crisis. And uh, I was getting ready to graduate, and I didn't really know what I was going to do. And I had a philosophy degree, so that was useful. And, um, you know, I basically had four options. Well, really three. Um, I had, uh, let's see, I could go to law school, which is what most of my buddies did. I could go on for doctoral work, which some of them did, or I could drive a cab. Um, And I went with option D, and I decided to become a pastor, which was not, when you go to uh, career counseling, they don't bring that up. I don't know if you realize that. That just doesn't, that wasn't on the list, right? But I had this moment of crisis where I was like, okay, what am I going to do in my life? But before that, I like, who, who has God created me to be? Who am I? What is most true about me? What defines me? If you could strip everything else away, if, is there one thing that if I was to lose that, then I would no longer be me? And see, I think that actually, because some of you are looking at me like, no one thinks like this. I think that a lot of us wrestle with similar questions. I think a lot of us wrestle and ask that same question, maybe not in those same terms, but I think we've all been there. So for example, you've got, you know, like a businessman or a businesswoman, maybe some of you, and you've gone to work every day, every day, every day, and you go and you start to think, is this really all that I am? Is this what defines me? That, that I just help, you know, increase the quarterly earnings? Am I just, you know, this machine that plug, plays, and produce for my company so that they do better? Am I just like this cog in the economic machine of society, right? Is that, is that really all that I am? Is that what defines me? Is that what's most true about me? Or maybe your mom. Now, we've got a lot of moms out there. And at some point, you start wondering, okay, is this really all that there is to my life? I'm just raising kids. I'm cleaning up after them. I keep them alive and well-fed. Not that raising children isn't a very high and important calling, but listen, you remember, you used to have a career, you used to have dreams, you used to have sleep, you used to have free time, right? You used to have all these things. And so at some point you start wondering, is this, is this all there is to my life? Now you've been reduced to cleaning up dirty diapers and carpooling. Is that what's most true about you? Is that what defines you? Or maybe... Uh, you're a young person, or maybe even not that young, and you're looking around, and you're going, hey, maybe what defines me is, is how I look. It's how I wear, or what I wear, how I dress, the things that I own. Is that what defines a person? Is that where they find their value? See, what is it that defines us as a people? What defines us corporately, but also individually? What is it that's most true about us? And what we find in Scripture that we're going to see this morning is that God's going to tell us this. He's going to say, you are not just a machine. Your value is not found in your earning potential, right? You're not just a machine. You're, you're not just your appearance. You're not just the things that you own. You're not just your physical appetites, right? Thank you, Dr. Freud, right? You're, you're more than just your genetic makeup. You're not even just your science, uh, scientific classification, right? You're more than just a mammal. And you're not even moms or dads or kids or parents. What God says is that you are a unique creation, a special creation by God, and you're made to look like him. So if you have your Bibles, you can follow along up here, maybe, and we're going to explore this this morning, all right? So here, here we are. Genesis chapter 1. Now, we started in Genesis chapter 1 last week. I'll just tell you right now, we're going to kind of jump back and forth a little bit from 1 to chapter 2. Did that move on me? Did it? Okay. Stay. That's going to work. All right. 
So we're going to be jumping back and forth a little bit. Because what we find is that chapter 1 ends with a very, very important description of who we are as people. And chapter 2 begins to expound on that. It gives us insight into that, all right? But what we want to start with is chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Okay, so very simply, to be made in the image of God, to be made in his likeness means very simply that we look like him. Okay, so in the ancient Near East, uh, when kings would uh, commission statues to be made of themselves, and they wanted to bear their image, what did that mean? It just meant that they looked like it. They create a statue, it has his image, they stamp it with his image, and it looks like the king. Okay, so it is the very simplest to have and to bear the image of God means that we look like God. Okay, so what does that mean? Anybody have a picture of God? Anybody have any idea of what God looks like? No, of course not. When we get to the New Testament, it's a little bit more helpful, right? Because then God himself becomes human in the form of Christ. And so we can look forward and say, okay, all right, I have a better, clear idea, maybe more specific about what it means to look like God. But again, obviously it doesn't mean that we're dressing like him. Obviously it doesn't mean we're all growing beards or something. So what are we talking about when it says that we bear the image of God, that we look like him? What is, what is that going to mean? Um, any of you parents with kids? When, when your kids are born, what is one of the first things that everybody says? Not the, maybe not the first thing, but one of the very first things. They come in and they see your kids, and, and they'll kind of ooh and awe over them. And then what do they say? Oh, he looks like you. Or she looks like you, mom or dad. Maybe sometimes a grandparent's thrown in there, but usually it's mom or dad, right? And, and you look at them and you're like, oh, they do look like me. They're little funny-looking versions of you, aren't they? They like little squinched faces, right? But they are. They're little funny-looking versions of you. By the way, that's why you think they're so cute. That's why you think they're so adorable, because you're looking at them, and you're like, oh, you're like me. By the way, sidebar, that cuteness, I've tell, told a few of this, but any of new parents or soon-to-be parents or someday will be parents, remember this, okay? That cuteness is no accident, okay? God, in his infinite wisdom, knew that your child would torture you would torment you, would keep you up all night long and throw up on you and demand to be fed and make terrible messes in their diapers, okay? And God knew that that child had to be a funny-looking version of you, all right? Don't kid yourself. That cuteness keeps them alive, all right? That's what keeps you coming back, okay? So they are funny-looking versions of you. That's how this starts, all right? But after time, it's not just their appearance, right? They begin to look like you in other ways, the way they talk, the way they walk, the way they laugh, the way they, they do their hair, the way they do different things, right? You start to see yourself in them, right? That terrifying moment when your kid comes and speaks back to you verbatim what you thought you'd said when they weren't listening. Anybody been there? You're like, okay, not going to say that around Junior anymore, right? See, they become, they become little versions of you. They begin to imitate you. right? It's the same idea here. Notice that, that when we talk about us having the image of God— We're not talking physically per se. We're talking about how we begin to take on his appearance. There's something intrinsic about us that in some way resembles God, that looks like God. And so like God, I'll give you just a few examples, and then we're going to look at two specifically from Genesis 2. But let me give you a few examples. So just like God, we are rational and intelligent beings. Just like God, we have emotions. Just like God, we are volitional beings. Just like God, we are creative. We make things, we mold things, we shape things. We actually do resemble God physically in some way, too. We reflect him, is maybe a better way to put it. We have eyes and ears and mouths. Look, we have eyes to see in the same way that God watches over us. 
We have ears to hear in the same way that God listens to us. We have mouths to speak in the same way that God speaks to us. Even our physical bodies, in some sense, reflects who God is and what's true about his character. See, all of us, we have been made in the image of God, and all of us look like him in some way. But it's an exhaustive list. We couldn't begin to list all of it. But there's something intrinsic in the way that we are and how he's made us. It's all-encompassing. We look like God. We reflect him. We resemble him. Now, when we come to Genesis 2, it's going to give us a couple of specific ways that we look like God. So we want to kind of dive into those for just a moment. One of the most significant ways, the first thing that we find in that we look like God is that we work. We work. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he'd formed. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Now, that might not seem like the most loving thing that God could do. Um, I just think about it. I'm like, okay, God, you are the creator of all things. You could have created things any way that you wanted to. And so there really didn't need to be any work at all, did there? He could have just left that part out. Or maybe he could have at least gotten the animals, and the animals could have done more of this work, and we wouldn't have had to do that. So what's going on here? Why does God care that we work? In the ancient Near East, um, you'll find these other uh, creation accounts. And there's at least two of them that very specifically describe humankind being created in order to be slaves to the gods. Uh, One one of those, uh, just to give you an example, is uh, the Enuma Elish. Right, this is one of the ancient, uh, I, think, I think it's Babylonian creation accounts. And um, Marduk is the son of one of the lesser gods. And he forms humanity out of the blood of one of his vanquished enemies in order for the humanity to, to do the manual labor that the gods didn't want to do. So he, wants to, he creates them specifically because the, la- the, uh, the gods are too lazy. They don't want to have to do that work. So he makes humanity as slaves. But when we come to Scripture, we find a very different picture. We find that God has created us to work because that's what he does. Back to chapter 1. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was good. And then in chapter 2, verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And so on the seventh day, God finished his work that he'd done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he'd done. See, according to scripture, our God works. Our God creates. He he gets in there. He makes. Remember, how does he make man? He makes him out of the dust. See, God isn't like this white collar laborer. He's actually in the mud. He's like digging it out. He's not hiring somebody to do this while he's a day trader. God is in there and he's making things. He's working. And what does he do? He calls it good. Everything that he's made, everything that he's done, he calls all of it good. See, there's a common misconception There's a common misconception in our society today that work is bad. That work is something that should be avoided. That work is something that you try to get other people to do. And if anything, we work so that someday we won't have to work. Right? We we work so that we earn money so that we can retire and we don't have to work anymore. We work to do the things that actually matter. Right? And can I just mention as well that in our society today that there is a bias. And this ship needs to be righted a little bit. There's a bias against manual labor, isn't there? We live in a society that, that upholds this idea that you are going to sit behind a desk and stare at a computer while you hire other people to do that other work, that menial work. But that's not the God that we find here. My, my neighbor um, is a, is a blue-collar guy through and through. Love him. 
strong believer, loves the Lord, helps me with all kinds of things around my house that I couldn't do. And uh, because I sit behind a desk and stare at a computer a lot. And uh, so he was over there the other day and he was making fun of me. And um, he said, he was helping me with some plumbing. He said, oh, you know, you young guys. He's like, the irony. He's like, you, uh, you just want to have this dream job where you're going to go sit behind a desk. He said, so you go off to school and you get in debt up to your eyeballs. He said, meanwhile, the plumbers are making 100 to $200 an hour. And, uh, and I heard him say that, and I thought, you know, maybe for some of you, that doesn't sound like a lot of money. That's like what you do on the fly. But, but for me, I was reconsidering my career options, right? But see, we have that, that idea of, okay, there's this good work and there's bad work, and there's, we've got, we, we want to avoid this work over here, but that's not what God says. God is blue collar, man. He's in the dirt. He's working it. He is making things happen. When Jesus shows up on the scene, he's a carpenter, Right? See, now here's my point, okay? And it's not to pick on anybody with a desk job. Look, here's my point. When we work, when you go to your jobs, whatever it is, when you go to your jobs and you work hard, moms, when you stay home and do the hardest job that there is without pay, without getting any credit, without vacation or breaks, and you raise those kids, when you do your work, whatever God has given you, you do it well and you work hard, you look like God. You look like him. Now, that's the first way. That's the first way that we look like God. There's another way. We don't work alone. And we don't live alone. We were created to be in community. We exist and we work and we live together in community. And together, we look more like God than we could on our own. Look what it says here. Back to chapter 1. Like I said, we're going to be jumping back and forth. Verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Notice the parallelism here. He says male and female becomes the image of God. It's together they bear the image of God. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him in chapter 2. Now, I've said this before, but in case you missed it, this word for helper... This is not a derogatory term. This is God describing uh, how he's creating man and he can create woman to be a helper to the man. But this is not a term for someone who's subservient or a servant in any way. In fact, this is a term that God uses of himself as he comes and helps his people and his children. And so the, the implication here is that man, when he's created, cannot accomplish, cannot carry out the work that God has given him to do on his own. He needs someone else. We're supposed to do work and to do life together. And together, we, in a sense, form a mosaic of God. We, each one of us, each one of us bears the image of God. Each one of us has that stamp of God. And yet, in some way, as we come together, as we work, as we live together, we look more like God than we would on our own. Together, we create a more full and robust picture of our Lord. And this shouldn't be a surprise. It shouldn't be a surprise because remember that God himself exists in Trinity. He is eternally one God and three persons. He's the Father, he's the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And within that family, right, within that family, what do they do? The Father loves and serves and cares for the Son and the Holy Spirit. And the Son loves and cares and um, serves and honors and respects the Father and the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit loves and honors and respects the Son and the Father, right? This is the dance of the Trinity as they serve one another. Guess what? When we come together as a body, when we come together, we get to show off God. We reflect God more fully because we get to love each other. 
And we get to serve each other. We get to respect each other. We get to honor one another. Put each other first. We look like God when we come together. And together, we look more like him than on our own. In our marriages, in our families, in our small groups, in our friendships, in our churches, and beyond. We look more like God together. Okay, so we look like God in our work and together in community. There's another way that we bear his image, though, and that's that we represent him. We represent God. We, we rule in his stead, in a sense. So check this out. Back to verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Um, remember those ancient Near Eastern kings that I mentioned earlier. They have those statues that are commissioned and they stamp their image upon them, right? They weren't just hoarding them around their castle. I'm sure they kept several, but they would also take them and they would place them in different lands, different countries that they were ruling over, but that were a long ways away. So they couldn't be there, but they would set up those statues as if to say, hey, I may not be present, but my rule, my authority still exists here. So don't rebel. Don't try to get away with anything because guess what? I may not be there and yet I'm there. I'm ruling. I still have authority over you. See, God has given each one of us his image. God has stamped that image upon each one of us and then he has scattered us. He has spread us all over his, the rest of his creation to be his representatives, to act and to rule on his behalf, not to carry out our agenda. It's not about what we're trying to do. We're supposed to reflect him. We're supposed to represent him. We're supposed to carry out what he's already started. And that's why God has created us in such a way where we're supposed to go and we're supposed to profit humanity. We're supposed to build civilization. We're supposed to prosper. We're supposed to take care of his creation. We're supposed to bring order to the chaos. That's why last week I was in my yard and I was beating back the chaos of my shrubs as I cut them down, right? I'm bringing order to my backyard, right? You never thought of it that way, did you? But see, that's what we're doing. Whenever we carry out our work to benefit this world, to benefit creation, to benefit our fellow man, that is representing God. That looks like him. We're carrying out what he's already started. So we look like God through our work, in that we work, and we work hard. We look like God in community as we come together and we love and we care and we, we respect and honor one another. And we look like God when we represent him. We bear his image. And he rules through us over all of his creation. Okay, so here's the question then. Is that what defines us? Is that what it really means to be human? Is, is it that we look like God? Is what matters most about us how much we look like God, put it that way, or how well we represent him? Is that what this is really all about? Is that what's most true about you? And the answer is no. There's something else. Parents, why does it matter so much that your kids look like you? That they're funny-looking versions of you? Why does that matter? Why as they get older and they begin to imitate you, hopefully in the good ways, why is that so cool when your kids start to laugh like you and sound like you and they do little things that you do? Why does that mean so much to you? 
I love it when my, my kids, they follow me around. You know, like I'm doing house projects and they get all their little, you know, play tools out and they follow me around. They get really frustrated because that plastic hammer doesn't do a whole lot. They really want the real thing, right? Why is that so cool for me? Or when I'm out in my yard and I'm mowing, you know, my two-year-old follows me around with his little mower at a safe distance. <laughs> Some of you are like, what kind of a dad are you? Okay, why is that so cool for us? Why does that matter so much? It's because they're our kids. Look, I, I, I know a lot of your kids, okay? And you've got great kids, but guess what? Don't take this the wrong way. I don't care if they look like me. I don't care if they imitate me. That would be kind of weird, in fact, if they also decided they wanted to be like me. That'd be so strange. The reason that it matters to me that my kids look like me, that my kids imitate me, that they're like little versions of me running around is because they're my children. I'm their dad. They're my boys. See, it's not about how much they look like me. Neither one of them look like me that much. It's not about how much they imitate me. It's the fact that they're my kids. It's all about that relationship. The fact that they look like me and imitate me and all the rest of that, that's just a byproduct. That just highlights the fact that they're mine. That they're mine. In the same way, in the same way, what defines us isn't how much we look like the Father. It's the fact that we have a relationship with Him. It's that we're His children and that He's our dad. That's what's amazing. That's what's most important. See, sometimes I'm going to look more like him than others. Sometimes I'm going to imitate him better. Sometimes I'm going to represent him. The question is, those things are just byproducts. Those are just highlights. Those just reflect the truth, which is he's our dad and we're his kids. That's what's most important. You, you track it with me here? What defines us then? This is what this means. What defines us then is not our earning potential. And it's not our appearance, it's not how much money we make, and it's not um, how many people like us or how popular we are or how many things we own or even if we're moms or dads. That's not what defines us. What defines us and therefore gives our lives value and meaning. This is where we go. This is where we run to when we want to be validated, when we want to know that we matter. We run to what defines us. And what defines us is that God loves us, that he's our father. That's what's most important about us. That relationship is what matters most. See, without that relationship, we start over. Without that relationship, we go right back to, to defining ourselves through all these other things. We look all over and we try to find other things, none of which is going to actually satisfy us, none of which is actually going to fill up our hearts, none of which is sufficient to take the place of God. See, everything else that we try to define ourselves by or try to find our value in or identity, all of those things eventually run out. They eventually fall short. So if I rely on my success or if I rely on my physical appearance, if I rely on my possessions, if I rely on how attractive I am, if I rely on, on any of those things, right, eventually, my family even, any of those things that eventually run out. If I try to rely on my success, eventually I'm not going to be successful. Eventually, I'm not going to be successful or success becomes mundane and I got to find something else. It's not big enough. It's not strong enough to fill me. If I rely on my physical appearance, which I would never do, but maybe some of you are beautiful people, okay? If you rely on your physical appearance, that that's what defines you. Guess what? In 80 years, it doesn't matter how good you look. All of that's going to fade. It doesn't matter what you own. It's not going to last. And your family, as great as they are, guess what? You will hurt them and they will hurt you. And I promise you, if you try to make them the center of your world, 
you will drive them away and you will crush them. If you try to base your happiness, your self-worth just on them. This is why we try to perfect our kids. They've got to be perfect. Because if they're not, that says something about me. See, it's not about them, it's about us. Heaven help us when we've turned our kids into projects to try to boost our own self-esteem. See, none of those things last. What all of us, all of us are longing for, what all of us are looking for, whether we realize it or not, we're just trying to get back to that relationship. We're trying to get back to God. We want to experience God's love as our Father. We want to know His approval and sense His pride in us as His children. Because God's love, listen to me, God's love is the only thing big enough and great enough and strong enough that will actually fill us. And it will give us that eternal value and significance that we're all looking for. Think about it this way. I'm going to give you a weird thought experiment, okay? Bear with me. Imagine for a moment that everybody that you know, everybody you've ever met, everybody that you know, they made a big line. And they were going to walk by you. As they walked by, they were going to, they were going to say one little sentence to you. Every single person, they walk by and they look at you and they say, I love you. Now, just for the sake of the thought experience, let's just suppose that all of them meant it. Okay? They actually meant it. They come by, they walk by and they say, John, Jill, whoever you are, I love you. Now, I suspect that that would be kind of cool. You'd be like, oh, that's, that's neat. All these people, they really like me. They love me. But I would suspect that some of them, they would say that and you'd say, Oh, th- thank you. That's great. I really appreciate that. But there would be a few that when they told you, it would take your breath away. If we were to leave here this morning, and please don't do this, okay? Because some of you are you're going to do this just to annoy me. I know you. But if we were to leave here this morning, okay, and every single one of you is to come up and to say, Lucas, I love you. Can I just tell you, I'd be flattered, creeped out, okay? <laughs> but I'd be flattered. That's really nice. Thank you, right? But can I tell you something? When my wife, Carrie, tells me that she loves me, my heart still skips a beat. And when my four-year-old, when I tuck him in at night, and I start to leave the room, And I hear him very quietly say, Daddy, I love you. Ah, it melts my heart. See, that's what God's love does. It melts our hearts. And as great as my wife's love is, and as great as my son's love is, God's love is of infinite value. Because he is of infinite value. He is God. He is the creator. He is our heavenly father. He has created all of us out of his goodness and his love. He knows us better than we know ourselves. He knows us better than our spouses. He knows us better than our children. He knows us better than our parents. Look, if you knew me the way that I know me, you wouldn't love me. But if I knew you as well as you know you, I wouldn't love you either, okay? But God loves all of us, even though he knows the wretchedness of our own hearts and how far we've fallen away from him. He knows us that well, and he still loves us. 
even though we have turned our backs on him, even though we have run away and we've abandoned that relationship and turned our backs on him as our father, even though we have hated him, we've reviled him and we've wished him dead, he still loves us and he still pursues us and he still was willing to pay the ultimate price to save us. That's how much he loves us. He is the father who is on an endless pursuit to bring back and to win back his children. And that's what defines you. That's what's most important about you. That God loves you that much. That's what's most true about you. That he loves you. If you'll only accept his love. So what defines you? What defines you? What is most significant about you? Where are you finding your value? Where are you finding your identity? Because, can I tell you, listen, whatever you think it is, what is most significant about you, what truly defines you, is whether or not you know God's love. And if you have never accepted, if you've never received, look, if you've never accepted that, that we have all run away from God and there's no way back if we've not accepted the forgiveness that comes through Jesus Christ and his death on the cross, then we've never really experienced his love. See, God's love comes unconditionally. It comes unconditionally. It's received unconditionally or it's not received at all. We don't get to play make a deal with God. We don't get to say, hey, God, you know what? I'll accept your love. I'll accept you as my father as long as you accept how great I am. See, it doesn't fly. We don't get to say, hey, God, you know what? I'll accept your love, but, but understand, I'm bringing a lot to the table here. I'm bringing a lot. You know what? Um, that's going to kind of pare my debt down. If you can credit that towards my debt and then you pay off the rest, that's fantastic. You see, if we do that, if we don't accept God's love that's freely given, freely, then we're still trying to define ourselves by something else. And if we go that route, we're going to continue, continue, continue to find other things to say, this is what def- defines me. This is where my value is. This is my identity. It has to be God's love or nothing else. See, there's a better way. If we allow God to define us, if we allow his love to define us, that relationship to define us, to give us value, to give us meaning, to give us purpose. If we accept his declaration of us that we are loved, that we're his children, and we receive by faith the forgiveness, the grace that comes through Christ, then we will know real love. And we will know real acceptance. Because we are loved and we are accepted by the only one who matters, our Heavenly Father. And then we'll begin to look like Him.